Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open my lips and our hearts, that we might acknowledge Jesus, your Son, as our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. and thank you for the hospitality that you've extended to me over this last week and given me the great privilege, as I count it to be, to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with you here. This morning I want us to spend a few moments looking at the reading from Revelation chapter 5 verses 11 to 14 that we had a few moments ago. But can I encourage you to get hold of the Pew Bibles because we're going to be looking at the verses before that and you actually need to see chapter 4 to be able to understand chapter 5. So it'll be helpful to you to turn up the Pew Bibles to feel the weight and the excitement that you actually have in that last little bit of Revelation 5. The context, you see, the context starts back in chapter 4 and reaches a climax at the end of chapter 5. John in chapter 4 is being shown into heaven to see what is there now and therefore what must follow immediately afterwards. And what he sees is the throne room of God and God sitting upon the throne where all the living creatures sing praises to the holy God of eternity. Holy, chapter 4, verse 8, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then the 24 elders, the, the kings, cast their crown before him as they fall down, continually singing the praises of God, the creator, of the creator of everything, the creator of everything from nothing. And they sing in verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter 5 commences with John seeing God the Creator sitting on the throne with a scroll in his hand. I read, Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Here is the scroll, God's plan for the world. Here is what is going to happen. A scroll written completely all over, in and out, but it is sealed up. Sealed completely with seven seals. Sealed completely and unable to be read or opened or implemented. Unable to be opened, unable to be read, unable to be implemented is the plan of God. And like Daniel of old, John saw this heavenly figure asking the question about the scroll. But what we have is a very disappointing answer. An answer that is so disappointing that it leads to tears. The question is there in chapter 5 verse 2, who is worthy? And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? to open the scroll and to break its seals. Not who's strong enough, 
who's worthy enough who is suitable who is righteous who is holy who is worthy to open the scroll of God and break its seals implementing the very plans of God and the answer that is so disappointing is that there is no one who is able no one in heaven no one in earth no one under the earth no one in all the universe there is not one who is worthy to read the God's scroll verse 3 and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it so John weeps weeps and weeps for such is the evil of our universe that there is not one person not one being who can read God's word and put into effect his plans for such is the hopelessness that God's will is not to be done here on earth as it is in heaven and so he weeps and weeps that no one was found to open the scroll but then one of the elders speaks to John with incredible encouragement and comfort weep no more he says weep no more for there is one one who can open the scroll and its seven seals there is one and I may add only one the lion the tribe of Judah the root of David this is a double messianic title from the Old Testament slightly different to the Old Testament but clearly pointing to the Old Testament it's the identification of the Christ the one in Genesis 49 the lion of the tribe of Judah for we're told the king will come from the tribe of Judah and from 2 Samuel 7 the root of David for we know from David's family will come the king the Messiah so the elder was saying don't weep don't weep because it's the Christ the Messiah will come more the Messiah has come but he was saying still more than that for the Messiah has not only come the Messiah has conquered and the conqueror he can open the scroll he can open its seals and so we read in the fifth verse of chapter 5 the Christ has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals here's something of the purpose of his victory at Easter the victory of Christ was to open the scroll and read the plans and the purposes of God to stop that which was bound up and sealed to free it to be put into effect if with the Apostle John we would look into heaven this is what we would see the Christ the conquering Lion of Judah the roots of David and we would see the conquering Christ like this and we would know and understand what must now take place for the King has come to his throne the 
conqueror has arrived in order to break open the seals and read the book of God. But when John looked, when John looked to see the conquering lion of Judah, what he saw could not be further from his imagination or his expectation. For the conquering lion of Judah turned out to be a dead sheep. Turned out to be a slain lamb. Not even a full-grown sheep. Not a powerful ram. Just a dead lamb. A lamb that not even had life and strength and energy to jump around as little lambs do. No, a lamb that looked like it had been slain. Here, of course, is the great paradox of the gospel. That the way to conquest was seemingly to be conquered. The way to glory is the cross. There's nothing more shameful in the ancient world than the cross. There's lots of ways to kill a man. There's a lot simpler, a lot easier, a lot quicker, a lot cheaper than to crucify him. Crucifixion was, an action, it was, was a statement of political power. Crucifixion was the way of dying shamefully in ignominy as a defeated and beaten person held up to public ridicule and scorn. But it's in the cross of Christ that we find the glory of Christ. It's in being conquered by the Romans that he conquers Satan. It's the glory of Christ that he was crucified for us. Christ's victory, Christ's way to save the world was to lose his own life. That terrible irony is he hung on the cross and they called out to him, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Which of course is true. For to save himself meant he wouldn't save others. And to save others he couldn't save himself. The way to rescue us from God's wrath was to endure it. And so, he is the worthy one. As the Apostle Paul put it in to the Philippians, it's because he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death that therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because he was obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Here then is John's sight. In the centre of the throne of God, he looked for the kingly lion and he saw the sacrificial lamb. And yet, he's not dead. He's not powerless. For he is described here as John saw him with seven horns. A horn is a symbol of strength throughout the Bible. So he has all strength, seven horns. And he had seven eyes seeing throughout everything in the universe. And seven spirits, the whole spirit of God who's bestowed upon the world. 
For the one who died has risen. Now in heaven he rules as the conqueror, the victorious world ruler who shares the throne with his father. Thus he is both worthy and able to put God's will into effect. And thus we read in verse 7 that he takes the scroll from the hand of him who sits on the throne. Here is the moment. Here is the action. What will happen next? Now that the line of Judah, now that the root of David has conquered and risen and is at the throne of God, this is the great climax, the great climax of heaven. This is the moment when heaven's rule is going to be put into effect in this world. This is the moment when something has changed for all of the universe and for all eternity. For now... The will of God is to be implemented by the Lamb of God who has risen to sit with him and has taken the scroll. And now, therefore, before he opens the scroll, before he releases the seals, before he reads the words, before it all happens and he implements the plan of God, as he reach out to take the scroll at this kind of magic moment of the history of the universe, there is a sudden breaking out of singing in heaven with three wonderful songs that we have here at the end of chapter 5. Firstly, there's the new song of verse 9. The new song for the four living creatures and the 24 elders of chapter 4 who were previously singing of the, singing of the, of the great eternal crater, praising this creator for everything that he has created out of nothing. Now they're falling down before the slain lamb, the one who is alive though he appears dead, bringing the prayers of God's people to him and singing the conquest, the victory that he's had. Verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. What he's saying, what they're saying, explains the drama of heaven that John was witnessing. The Lamb is worthy to open the scroll and its seals. Why? Because he was slain. It is his death that enables him to make him worthy to be the implementer of the plans and purposes of God. But it wasn't simply that he was slain. It was the purpose for which he was slain that makes him worthy. For they continue, he was slain so that his blood would ransom people for God from everywhere. So that these people would become a kingdom and priests who will rule the world. It's a fantastic description of the gospel, chapter 5, verse 9 of the book of Revelation. I would say mark it in your Bibles, except you're looking at pew Bibles, so don't mark the pew Bibles. But if you've got your own, mark it. It's such a wonderful gospel statement. A fantastic description that Jesus, by his death, has ransomed us out of our sin, out of our death, 
out of our self-centred living, out of our captivity to Satan, out of the wrath of God that is to come upon us and turned us, turned sinners into priests, turned slaves into kings. That is what he has done. This is what makes him worthy to be able to open the seals and the scroll in God's hand. There was no one else in all creation worthy enough to be able to open the scroll. For only Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has ransomed people for God and ascended to sit with him in all power and authority. And when you see this picture, when you hear this song, you see the implications that flow in at two levels, at a universal level and a personal level. At the universal level, because now the judgment of God on earth is going to take place because the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the ruler of all rulers has come to his place to execute the judgment on the world. But there's a personal bit too, isn't there? Because are you one of the ransomed? Are you one who used to be a slave to sin, but are now God's priest? Who used to be a slave to sin, but are now God's king? Now, this is what Jesus died and rose again to make his people, but are you one of his people? Or is even your church going just part of your cultural custom because you really are living still for yourself and not for him and it's not making any real difference to the way you live that Jesus is king and saviour well there's a second song then with the song of the living creatures and the elders came the song of the angels in verses 11 and 12. Myriad means 10,000, 10,000 times 10,000 angels join the living creatures and the elders. And they sing with a loud voice, they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. This, this is almost blasphemous. For previously, back in chapter 4, verse 11, the living creatures and the elders were saying that the Lord God was the one who was worthy to receive glory and honour and power. Remember the Ten Commandments remind us that God is a jealous God who will not share his glory with another, who will not tolerate idolatry. The worship of any creature instead of the creator is blasphemy. And now the angels of heaven are ascribing to a creature, to a lamb, to a slain lamb, the honour and glory that is due to God the Creator. So I asked you last week, to what man, to which politician, to which ruler or king would you ever give power and dominion, glory and honour, wisdom and wealth? There's nobody worthy to rule with such absolute authority, with such absolute power for all eternity, not even for a week, let alone eternity. 
But now all the angels of heaven, thousands upon thousands of the angels of heaven, are singing the praises of the slain lamb just in those terms. Terms which should be restricted to God. Later in the book of Revelation, John fell down in front of an angel and the angel quickly rebuked him. You mustn't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Two chapters later, John does it again and again. An angel says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Indeed, back in the days of King Herod the Agrippa, the crowd started to call out to him, the voice of a God, the voice of a God, not a man. And we read, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last in Acts 12. Why, Jesus himself, when he was being tempted by Satan, said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. But now, all the angels of heaven are singing the praises of the slain lamb as if he were God. And just as we may draw our breath to see what is about to happen to such almost seeming blasphemy, a third song bursts forth into full voice when all the creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth join in the universal song that we read in verse 13 to him who sits upon the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever now it's both the creator and the saviour together they are worshipped and they are wished everything everything that there is to have blessings honour, glory, might and not just for the moment but forever and ever now the creatures and the elders and everything in all the universe fall down and worship the creator and the saviour the whole scene of heaven that John witnessed and which we have heard today then leads to these two kinds of questions, universal and personal. So the universal questions are about who rules the world? Who is in charge of this crazy world that we're in at the moment? What's he doing about it? The rest of the book of Revelation tells us that. The atheists understand what is being professed here often better than the Christians. They want to change the dating of the world from BC AD, you know, before Christ and in the year of the Lord. We never have AC because he can't be after Christ because Christ is there, alive, ruling the world. So we have AD, Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. They want to change that to BCE, CE, before the common era and the common era. Even though the dates they suggest are identical to the Christian ones. And even though there never has been a common era. 
The Jews date everything from the time of Moses. The, the Muslims date everything from the time of Muhammad. The Buddhists don't date anything at all because they don't believe in time or history. There never has been such a thing as a common era. It's a complete figment of atheistic imagination, which is why it's so profoundly stupid. For it is the fool who says in his heart there is no God. And they demonstrate their foolishness by imposing upon university students in secular universities that they're not allowed to write AD. They must, in political correctness right now, BCE and CE. They understand that when you talk about the year of the Lord, when you talk about the Lord reigning now, he is God, he is king. And our lives are to be lived for him because he is in control of the universe. They see the significance of John's vision of Jesus, the slain lamb, the conquering king, the lion of Judah, the son of David. But what does it mean? What does it mean in the world where we have Syria going on in its terrible, terrible warfare, where we have the forces of ISIS raising up, and it never seems to change? A few years ago, we had the forces of communism. They kind of collapsed with the Berlin Wall, and then you have the forces of ISIS. It keeps coming. Wars and rumours of the wars never change. But Jesus is in control. How can this be? Well, chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice and th like thunder, Come! And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider and a bow and a crown was given to him. He came out conquering and conquering. And when he opened the second seal I heard a second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And so the four horses of the apocalypse come under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to conquer, to bring famine and war and destruction because the Jesus is on the cross. It's different to what you may have expected. And I'd love to tell you about it, but I have a flight home and there's a few chapters to go in the book of Revelation. So read on for yourselves, my dear brothers and sisters, to see what it is that flows out of Christ's coronation of which we read in this passage. But while the book of Revelation leads to these universal questions and the, and the work of judgment in the world today as it leads to that return of our Lord and Saviour, the same revelation of the conquering Christ of heaven asks you and me the personal questions as to our relationship with this Christ. Whether we ourselves have been ransomed by him ransomed from our slavery to sin to become the kingdom of God's priests you see he rules the universe but does he rule your universe your actions your hope your life, your aspirations, your desires for your children, your bank account, your, your retirement plans. Does the Lord Jesus Christ rule you in all aspects of your life? 
can you join with all the angels and all the creatures and honestly sing from the sincerity of your heart that you actually want Jesus to have all power, all wealth, all wisdom, all might, all glory and all blessings in your life? Or do you still wish to live your life your way? And be the master of your own destiny and choices, including church going, which can be no more than an expression of your conservative custom and culture that you choose to continue. I suggested to you last week that if you want to change government, you don't do it in the ballot box. You do it on your knees. For the real change in government that makes the true difference to our lives is not moving from one party to another, from one human to another, until we can get rid of that one. The real change happens when we move from self-government to Christ's government. And we do that in prayer like the prayer I'm about to lead you in now. Let's pray. Dear God, I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life, for I'm guilty of rebelling against you and just plain ignoring you. And I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me. And please change me that I may live with Jesus as my Lord 